and immediately, as soon as the helicopters came inbound, um, they we started getting shot at. I was sitting on the left side of my helicopter and also engaging the enemy on the ground with my M4 out the door. Basically swung my legs out and was shooting in the, in the uh, other H6 Little Bird was doing the same thing. Uh, one, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage uh, single man targets on the ground. Hi, and welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. MWI's John Spencer takes over for this episode. You've heard him before featured as a guest on The Spear, but now he moves over to the interviewer's chair for this discussion with Colonel Phil Ryan. Colonel Ryan is an Army aviator who has spent much of his career in the Army's most elite special operations aviation units. In 2003, at the very beginning of the invasion of Iraq, he took part in a mission that involved 14 aircraft targeting a facility deep inside Iraq, further than any ground forces had yet made it. After taking fire from enemy forces on the ground, an intense firefight broke out that involved U.S. operators landed by Chinooks and Blackhawks and the elite aviators flying just above the ground. We're thrilled to feature this incredible story that highlights pilots in combat. Before we get to it, though, just a couple really quick notes. First, be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Second, just to let you know, there is just a little bit of swearing in this episode. And lastly, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's John Spencer and Colonel Phil Ryan. Colonel Ryan, sir, it's really an honor to have you on the MWI podcast. Thanks. So, you know, this is the spear, which we talk about, you know, those, that combat episode that night. Um, and, sir, I think you're going to talk about a, a special night in early in Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 for the invasion. Right. So, 26 March 19, or 2003, uh, we were alerted a couple of days prior to that for with some intelligence to go find and inspect uh, with a, uh, a Navy SEAL ground force what was uh, planned or thought of to be the uh, WMD site where Saddam Hussein was storing and had passed chemical weapons into Syria from that site. It was about 200 miles west-northwest of Baghdad. So at that point, the uh, the farthest point that any Americans had gotten into Iraq uh, f- from uh, from any location. So we had 14 special operations helicopters, two AH-6 Little Bird gunships, two MH-6 uh, slick Little Birds that uh, had people pods on the side and had uh, snipers on- along, uh, four MH-60 Kilo Blackhawk assault helicopters that had a Ranger force on board. Uh, two MH-60 DAP armed attack uh, Blackhawk helicopters, and then four more uh, Chinook helicopters, MH-47Es at the time, and that had the main SEAL ground force on board. Uh, We took off out of our staging base out of uh, RR Saudi Arabia, and uh, 
it was a long flight, uh, about two and a half hours uh, flying direct from uh, Saudi Arabia in the desert there where our, our main JSOC base was and uh, going going almost due north to get to this uh, our, our MSS, our mission support site, which is where we had gas and a small surgical team set up. And the gas was provided by uh, MC-130 uh, Air Force transports that uh, were going to give pump us gas on the ground. I was in the last helicopter to land there. Uh, the the force came in at uh, various times. The little birds take a long time to fly. They're they're fairly slow, 90 knots compared to the the Chinooks and the Blackhawks that were doing about 110 knots. So we took off. We took off early, but the the bigger aircraft passed us en route. Uh, they all got set. Well, by the time we got to this desert landing site, uh, it was incredibly dusty, um, and my co-pilot and I we had to circle the uh, the area. There was it was zero illumination, very very dark that night, and uh, our fuel gauge was down. It was flickering; had been flickering for about ten minutes at that point. Uh, and we land in the desert, and uh, our aircraft bounces a little bit. And I looked down at the fuel gauge, and it said ten pounds left which for a helicopter is a tiny amount of gas. We were, oh, yeah. we were basically about to uh, flame out the engine at that point. Wow. Uh, so luckily, uh, Johnny in the spot, our guys were there. They, uh, they refueled us. We all got set. And about 30 minutes later, after we did our final check, uh, it was at that point about 2 o'clock in the morning local time. We went into this uh, Al-Q-Saya uh, is the was it the name of the site, but we went into this uh, new uh, WMD facility with the ground force. Uh, we sprinted ahead because we had we were armed with uh, two seven-shot rocket pods and uh, two miniguns with uh, uh, that six-barrel miniguns that fire four thousand rounds of uh, seven six two uh, a minute, and uh, we were the initial cast platform. As the Blackhawks came in to set up the blocking positions with the uh, Rangers on board, they immediately took fire. And, from the uh, ground. From the ground. Uh, and we we had gotten the briefing that, uh, hey, we don't know if there's WMD, but if there is resistance, that means there's probably something there. Yeah. And immediately, as soon as the helicopters came inbound, um, they we started getting shot at. Uh, one of the rangers, as he stepped off, uh, the Blackhawk got shot uh, in the back, came out and uh, hit the front of his plate. Uh, he was immediately with his buddy thrown right back on the Blackhawk and taken back to the, the surgical team at our, at our uh, MSS. The uh, other Blackhawk, all, all four Blackhawks put in their blocking positions. The uh, MH6s with their snipers on board were, were trying to shoot the... Uh, enemy that were running away from the the site at the time, but some of them were protecting themselves or shielding themselves with uh, with females, human oh. shields basically. Wow. Simultaneously, um, I was sitting on the left side of my helicopter and also engaging the enemy on the ground with my M4 at the door. Basically, swung my legs out and was shooting in the in the uh, other. H6 Little Bird was doing the same thing. Uh, yeah. One one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage uh, single man targets on the ground. Yeah, I've seen video of the Little Bird pilots. Uh, 
I mean, outside of the, like you said, depending on what armaments on the on there, sometimes it's literally the pilot with his personal weapon leaning out and, and engaging targets. Yep, that's amazing. And that's where, so shoot behind the head of of the uh, the enemy to uh, get the his human shield to duck, and then we could then we could shoot him directly. Oh. And, what about uh, what elevation are you flying at? Uh, we were about three hundred feet at the time, okay. so we were skimming right right over the top of the yeah. target area. The Chinooks then came in, uh, four Chinooks uh, loaded to bear with uh, a, a SEAL squadron on board, and they immediately rushed into the scene. Um, more enemy fire, though. One of our crew chiefs took a bullet right into the head and uh, collapsed right in the back of the of the helicopter. It took the other three crew chiefs on board to uh, stabilize them. They did CPR in the back of the helicopter, uh, brought him back to life, uh, as Staff Sergeant Glenn Earl, he's still alive today. Thankfully, he's not not fully functional, but he he's still living and, and uh, w- was medically retired out of out of the army. But he was flown directly back to the mission support site as well. That's one of the Blackhawks, or well, the Chinooks. Chinooks. So it, I mean, it sounds like a. I mean, I'm just picturing like this beehive of, fly, of it, flying objects in the sky. It was, yeah, and then so you had the. The two MH6s with the snipers on board, the two AH6s, the two MH60 DAPs, the other armed helicopters, and they're they're shooting uh, enemy vehicles that are sprinting or driving away from the site as uh, as they leave, wow. because we we try to contain everything in there and figure out what was actually inside. The uh, we were supposed to have a pair of A10s that were covering with a uh, fixed wing close air support as well, but. Because of uh, a delay, they were not able to make it. Uh, so they were they had been tasked to take out the the uh, power station that fed the lights to yeah. and the electricity to yeah. the to the town. So that mission fell to the to the armed Blackhawks, the DAPs, and the DAPs rolled in and shot the transformer pole. Well, transformers are full of oil and other. Um, other liquids, and as soon as the bullets hit it, it exploded. And what was supposed to turn the town dark, all of a sudden we had a, oh, a flaming backlight. fire pole that uh, basically uh, backlit the entire target wow. uh, at about 30 feet in the air. So all of a sudden it went from mostly dark to we were now seeing our own shadow on the ground because it was illuminating us as we uh, as we were flying around. And, and all of our helicopters started getting hit at this point. Ultimately, Eight of the fourteen helicopters uh, took bullet holes that night. My uh, my lead age six, uh, he took. Uh, we were very lucky. We didn't. No, none of our pilots were wounded. One one crew chief wounded. One ranger wounded. But other than that, uh, everybody else was was fine for a target where we took so many bullet holes. My uh, the flight lead of the age six took two rounds uh, right underneath the seat, and it was. If it wasn't for a piece of radio equipment underneath his butt, he would have taken two in, in the ass, basically. But uh, we saw folks running in and out of buildings, and uh, as I'm, I'm feet out engaging uh, targets uh, with the M4 and, and uh, uh, pointing out for uh, my co-pilot to shoot. Uh, we are all under nods of this, of course. We are. We're all, we're all under uh, NVGs. Uh, we saw a guy run into this building. And uh, at a glass door, it was the telephone building for the town, as we later found out. And um, my co-pilot tipped in, 
and fired a pair of rockets and sent it through the front door of this building and wow. blew the guy out the backside. We, the ground force searched for about 45 minutes. Um, they took a bunch of intel off the target, uh, but ultimately uh, it, was, it was not deemed that it was an active WMD site. There, were, there was some intel there that led to some conclusions, uh, but that's for the, the intel folks to figure out and, yeah. and the generals to make decisions on. But then we had to go back to the mission support site. So at this point, we've been we've been flying for probably four and a half to five hours. Uh, had had to go back and and get gas and get get bullets again because uh, we had to cover the the exfil of the ground force. So the the Blackhawks and the Chinooks had to come back in, pick up the ground force. Yeah. So you're doing basically rotations, right? So the ground the ground force is on the ground, and you're because of fuel or ammo, whatever, rotating back to right. rearm or refuel. And then, then come back to the target site. Yep. And then we had to make sure that, as we always do, we had to cover them when the Blackhawk and the Chinooks came in to pick up the ground force. We had to be over uh, on top of them on station to make sure that uh, we could engage if they got shot at again, which by that point there was very little enemy fire. We'd, we'd uh, suppressed uh, the enemy, but with a lot of bullet holes. Uh, so we picked them up, go back to the... Uh, Desert Landing Site or the MSS one more time. It's still a mess, but luckily by that point the uh, C-130 had had flushed or taken off with the wounded on board, and uh, still very very dusty. We uh, we regroup, uh, ensure we've got the plan, and we fly back into Saudi Arabia another two and a half hours. Um, but this this point the sun is starting to come up, and uh, it just happened to me. My uh, this is now March 27th. My uh, my middle child, my son's uh, first birthday, wow. uh, was was that morning, and we we got back absolutely exhausted uh, because we fly with no doors on. Yeah. Um, so, the so, wind, so the wind yeah. and it was still March. It was cold. We're bundled up all the way to our to our necks. Uh, we we land back and start accounting for all the all the bullet holes and doing the CII, CSI analysis of of where each of the bullet holes was and yeah. how close it came to hitting folks and all. And uh, I got down on my knees and, and uh, just, you know, was very thankful that, uh, you know, I had not orphaned my son that night uh, on his first birthday. That would have kind of been a, a bummer. Um, but an incredible mission. Um, uh, I was, uh, my my Two H six crews were all awarded uh, distinguished flying crosses that night. Wow. Um, a number of the uh, other crews were as well, and part of it was just because we we continued to stay on above the target and get shot at and cover and and engage targets. Although we, uh, you know, the enemy was certainly having having uh, their pick of us with with uh, AK forty sevens and some other uh, heavier uh, machine guns shooting at us. Um, and that was that was still very early on, March 26th, 27th, uh, before things really got intense. Uh, follow on with Haditha Dam and uh, and uh, the hunt for Saddam up up in north. Uh, oh, yeah, they're still that. driving. I mean, Third ID still driving north. And the, yeah, Third ID was was still probably 100 miles away from getting to Baghdad at that yeah. point. So we we were certainly alone where we were yeah. uh, when we. 
basically, uh, this, once this, the MC-130s and all the helicopters flushed, there, was, there were no other friendly units in and around that area. So we were kind of alone and afraid up there. I, I can't, I mean, if you tell me this story, it does make me think of another raid similar in the desert, dusty, um, with fuel issues that went wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that ever in the minds of flight commanders and doing a complex operation like that? It is. Uh, so um, in uh, the first Iranian hostage rescue mission in April yeah. of, uh, of 1980, was, is, and that failure is why uh, at Desert One is, is the reason why my unit exists today. Yep. Uh, so out of that uh, mission in, in uh, 1980, the Holloway Commission was formed, and from the Holloway Commission, you you establish a unified special operations uh, command. Uh, basically, JSOC was formed out of that. You f- establish a uh, a special operations aviation unit, which is the 160th. You give better command and control of some of the other special mission units and the Rangers at that point, uh, and it really has established. Uh, we trace our lineage back to uh, the failure of Desert One as the reasons why we do things. Why do we plan uh, refuel operations in in, uh, in three different levels of contingencies? We always have a primary, alternate, and contingency plan uh, for refuel. Why do we have three levels of contingencies for arming? Uh, why do we always have uh, spare aircraft? It's all because of lessons learned that uh from that fateful night in uh, 1980. Yes, sir. So, for the spear, we really like to get inside of your mind, Um, and this is a, of course, all the pilots are on this mission are basically the world's best special operations. You you don't get there without going through selection, and, um, but it is, I mean, that sounds like a very personal uh, mission, flying in a little bird, open air, into that hot of a a mission. Um, Can you talk me through Especially when you so your fuel at the very beginning of it, you almost flew your bird out of fuel. Yeah, uh, and then get through that. I'm sure the the motions and the um, the spike of adrenaline is already present at the very beginning of it. But I mean, just personally, as in going through all that you just told me, I mean, my heartbeat is starting to raise. Uh, I'm thinking about the near near kind of catastrophe. Um, but you know, how does that factor into your mental state as you're executing that? long mission luckily we we train very hard uh in our in our ramp ups we train very hard in in uh in what in our training environment our situational training exercises and we we would rather our folks fail in training and succeed in combat so we we throw the book at them when it comes to training exercises, whether it starts in the simulator and then builds into actually getting into the cockpit all through the planning, uh, throw curveballs at them. But you brought up a great point about um, the failure in Desert One in 1980. And I actually thought about that as we are trying to land in that dust cloud. I mean, as soon as you started to explain that to me, I was like, this is just free plane. Yeah. I'm not expecting a you know a large explosion because two birds ran into each other, but I mean it started off as like yep I mean, yep and and when you consider that there were more helicopters on that site uh, where we were going into than what they ha- had in Desert One, 
the the chance of of a catastrophe was there yeah. because even some of the more recent missions that we've done, we actually uh, rock drill the FARP in particular. Yeah, that we have rules of the FARP old, being where you, refu where you Fort, refuel Fort Army refuel point, yep. and uh, we have rules about only one helicopter moves at a time, uh, so that if something goes wrong, it's only in that particular aircraft and not the whole fleet. Um, and and those have, have saved our butts more than once, those specific rules. Um, try not to do aerial rejoins, so flights coming together at night from different directions. We, we try to meet on the ground so we can we can talk. One, one group lands first, another group lands, and then, then you sort it out. It's better to sort it out on the ground than try to sort it out in the air when you're running out of fuel and uh, and when you're, when you're running out of options. But uh, yeah, it was. This was uh, probably the sixth or seventh night of flying. Um, I didn't fly every single night. We didn't we didn't have missions every single night, but we did the initial um, engagement of, of all the visual observation posts along the uh, southwest. Uh, border of Iraq uh, in, on March 16th, 17th, and 18th for the invasion of, uh, of Iraqi freedom. And then uh, every two or three days we were doing, doing follow-on missions, but this was the first one where we really uh, had a, an enemy force that uh, was determined to fight back. Yeah. We did, we'd had taken some shots, uh, but we also had folks surrendering that very first night as we were hitting the uh, visual observation posts, folks running away and just dropping their weapons, and we, we did not engage them. But this one, it was, uh, it was no kidding, uh, a lot of folks shooting back at us. And, uh, and, and it's, I actually was surprised in hearing your mission that the amount of civilians that were on this battlefield, as you said, they were using them as targets or as uh, shields. It was a small town. And this WMD site laboratory was uh, was kind of just an extension of it. Uh, so it was hard to find uh, good helicopter landing zones uh, because of, of the built-up area around it. And you try to put in blocking positions around the target to, to ensure you can secure it. And uh, they, had, they had difficulty on that with, uh, with the amount of uh, structures that were there and that frankly the amount of debris that was there as well. How long have you been flying before this this mission? Um, How long were you a pilot? I graduated flight school in 1993 okay. so about 10 years of flying yeah. at that point. Uh, so all of our, our pilots are, are uh, obviously uh, specially selected but also uh, pretty senior. Uh, I w as I probably had about a thousand hours at that point of, of uh, flight time, and I was one of the more junior pilots on that mission. When I look at uh, the uh, the m number of CW fours and uh, Chief Warrant Officer fours that were flying that that particular night, there we had a really stout crew of folks. So you know, I don't want to action you know after action review the mission, but you know, as you've looked back over these years. Um, there's something that you would have wanted to go differently, or I mean, it was just a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> um, you never have perfect intel, yeah. and we did not think again the uh, the thought process of uh, we don't think there's really going to be 
too much resistance there. But if there is, then that means there's something valuable there. Now that, that wasn't much to go on. And as we, uh, from the initial rounds of being shot at, like, okay, this is real. We, right. This is more than we expected. And uh, we just kind of rolled with those punches. But it, it kind of reinforced uh, with all of the air crews and also the ground forces of, hey, we've got to have better intel before we hang it out there. Because, again, we were well away from, there was no uh, contingency force or emergency, uh, there was no uh, uh, response force that could have come to, to our rescue. There was no armor brigade on the ground that was going to drive up and help us if we had a helicopter shot down or if we got in a, a really... Uh, if the ground force got in really heavy uh, troops in contact, they had that going on. But uh, if we had had some, uh, any chance of better intel, that would have uh, probably prepared us mentally because once the first uh, set of helicopters started getting hit, it certainly got us turned on to, okay, we've got to be on our game now. Uh, And, oh, by the way, we're already tired. We had... We'd left Saudi Arabia, was, uh, flew through a dust storm getting up there, uh, two and a half hours up, refuel on the ground, infill the target, overwatch the target, go back, get more refuel, cover the exfil, go back to the uh, desert site, refuel again, and then fly back. It ended up being about a 10-hour night of flying, uh, which, which just wore all of us out. Did, did it establish a new benchmark, though, for you? It just, if you could do that in all those, um, of course, these are a different category of pilots, but if they all could go through that, did that set a new benchmark in your, especially for the rest of your career, to say, we did that. So it kind of pushes the bar where you know you can push, although there are certain guidelines you can't, you know, certain rest hours you have to enforce and everything, but to say, I know we can push. It did give us some confidence. Um, because most of us, this was our, uh, most of the pilots, except for the Chinook uh, crews who had been back and forth in Afghanistan since uh, October of 2001. I'd done a three-month tour in Afghanistan, but I was not a primary pilot. I was working on staff at the time and flew only four missions uh, during that three and a half months. But for most of the Blackhawk and Little Bird crews, this was their first combat uh, experience over the, those previous two weeks. Uh, so it did give us that confidence of, okay, our training's paid off, our planning has paid off. We, we, uh, we went through a number of contingencies as, as we had two wounded, we had uh, aircraft shot, we were running out of gas, we needed uh, rearming. Um, so it helped us a, a, ensure that our SOPs were correct and then we did build on that in the future as uh, we'd, we'd planned this for about three days wow. uh, what we that amounted to fast forward three or four years we were planning missions in two to three hours and rolling out the door to go hit uh, some very bad folks in Baghdad and Fallujah and Ramadi and places all over the country and because we had proven that uh we could do compartmentalized but very rapid planning. That allowed us to be able to get that good where we could do it over and over and over again every single night, wow. uh, which certainly got got sporty in, in the, quote, heyday of 2006, 2007, when things were very busy all over the country. Yes, sir. So last question. Um, it was a very 
personal experience, but of course you, you said the training and all that kicked off. Um, and you know, cadets graduating soon, you know, some of them going into aviation, you know, and they have a long path that they want to go different routes. Um, but what is your recommendation, having have I mean, your your long career, but also to, to go through an experience like that, to these soon to be graduating cadets on um, the missions that they could possibly face. Never stop learning. Um, although I was a pilot in command and had had flown again about a thousand hours at that point and qualified and at at that stage I was qualified in four different helicopters. I started in the Huey, went to the OH-58, Apaches, and now, now Little Birds. But there's always so much more to learn. You need to always fine-tune and hone your craft so that uh, you can be the expert that the ground force expects. Um, uh, aviation branch as a whole is a maneuver arm now. Uh, it wasn't always respected or, or thought of that way. And today it is, and you can ask uh folks that have been on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other other locations, how important Army aviation is overall. You, you cannot get to places in Afghanistan or places in Yemen or places in Africa without a helicopter ride to get you there. And uh, the, the ground force expects us to be experts at our trade, and you cannot rest on just being a good pilot. You've got to keep studying and, and ensure that uh, you are the the best of what you can do uh, to provide them the best support that is expected. Yes, sir. And as a, a ground guy, I, I, I'm definitely appreciative. Well, sir, thanks a lot for joining us at MWI, and I think this will impact a lot of people. Oh, thanks very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you'd take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. Thanks again for listening.